This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Shalom, everyone. I'm Yom Tov. Uh, raise your hand if you've uh, been uh, at all seeing me or hearing me on Torah Anytime or Facebook or my live feeds. So I'd like to, um, I'd like to, uh, first of all, thank you for watching. And I, I don't know, do you, also raise your hand if you get a feeling I have you in mind while I'm doing my live feeds. Do you feel I have your mind or you're just watch, listening in to a share? Have your mind, raise your hand. Listening in. Okay. You should know I have you in mind, big time. Because I'm standing in front of like, I'm standing in front of like, you know, on a small day it's 20 people, on a big day it's like 40 people. And, and meanwhile, there's a camera on and that camera's going out to not 40 people. You know, it's really going out to hundreds of people and then it hits the thousands. And, and so, I certainly have in mind those 40 people and it means, so, they're, they're everything to me. I like, you'll notice if I'm not teaching that sheer, I will not have any live feeds. Why don't I just turn on a camera and teach a sheer? And that's because I, I just can't talk into a circle with my heart. And the, and all my shirim, they come from the people in the shir. They don't come from me. I don't, I don't know what I'm ever going to say, and I don't know what I'm going to say now either. Although I did give a title. And I've been, I've been loving this title lately. It's just become, you know, it's just such a powerful thing to understand deeply, and that is uh, order and chaos is just such an amazing subject. And some of you probably don't even know what I'm going to talk about with order and chaos, you know. But the... But it really is something very special. And, and you see it rooted in Torah because it starts with tohu vavohu. And what, le- what word is used if you look at the art scroll about tohu vavohu? What word do you see? What do you see? Order? No. What do you see? You see chaos. The Torah says chaos. Uh, if you ladies in the back can move over, please. It's going to make me crazy that you're blocked by the camera. Okay? So... <laughs> Make a bracha boch ato dinoi, hinamelech hoinam, shaha kol niabedvo. So the Torah is very clearly, we're starting with chaos. Everything's total chaos. And then, and then you see that God speaks order into the world. He speaks from that chaos comes a world. And the world that's full of order, because this entire world is made of systems. Systems in nature, gravity, solar system, galaxies. And and all of this world, this physical world, it runs via order and extreme precision of order. Like the order on the highest level. And that's spoken into existence. And it's, and it's also given an adjective a descriptive adjective. What is the adjective given by all the order that God speaks into the world when he says, let there be this and let there be that? What does he say at the end of each one? And he saw that it was good. Well, gee, we now have a definition of something good. We have something, a definition of something good. If you can close that door, please. We have a definition of something good. What is good? Good is when you have chaos and you speak something into existence. That's not chaos, it's order. Well, what does it mean to speak order into existence? How do you speak order into existence? Well, I think we all know that. I think we all know that, and that's that 
If you lie, tell me, does your life get more order or more chaos? Which one? You get more chaos. Where are you guys? Look alive. When you lie, does your life get more order or chaos? Chaos. 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 Ladies are pretty active. <laughs> get you guys uh, woken up over there. Rigor mortis is setting in. Okay. So, when... <laughs> when you tell the truth, when you tell the truth, and gently tell the truth, obviously you don't want to hurt anybody, but when you're, when you're honest, and you're real, and you're truthful about yourself, about life, for example, and this is kind of little excerpts from the Possible Use Seminar, who, uh, um, I know there's several graduates out there, but confidentially, confidentiality is so high for anyone who participates in my seminar that I can't ask everyone to raise their hand who did the seminar because you're not allowed to know who did the seminar because it's, uh, it stays highly confidential. What happens in the possible you stays in the possible you. It's like Vegas. Now, now the, um, but, but one thing's for sure is that we all lie to ourselves. We all lie to ourselves. I'm not going to speak a lot about this, but we all lie. All of us lie. I know myself. I've lied many, many times to myself about myself. Because, you know, I had a humiliating thing happen to me when I was 10. And I said to myself that I'm, you know, I was so embarrassed. I so wanted to be accepted by people. And it just didn't work out in that one embarrassing moment as a kid that I said to myself that I'm unacceptable because of some stupid circumstance that lasted a fraction of a second. So, is that true or was it true that I was unacceptable or was it a lie? Which one? It was a lie that I was unacceptable, but I said that to myself from 10 years old till 33, which means my wife was married to a man who had, I'm unacceptable underneath, underneath the surface. Now, of course... I, it was underneath. I was too busy, like, being this rock star Kiruv rabbi, you know, making her feel guilty for trying to, like, reel me back home once in a while. And, and I, was, I was just, you know, unacceptable was what was really going on. Now, what do you think? I was creating more uh, order in my life or more chaos? Yeah. Yeah. More order in my marriage or more chaos? Mm-hmm. More order in my, fa- my job as a father or more chaos? It was just creating chaos. And so what we see is the second I said to myself the truth, that who I am is someone worthy of acceptance, worthy as a human being, I'm just a worthy person. The second I said that as a victory over unacceptable. Now, obviously, there was a lot of tears shed, and I had to, like, go deep in there. I had to go down my rabbit hole. But when I went down there, and I broke it out, and I, I got truthful about myself my life started developing order. You can actually meet someone whose life's like going down the barrel, meaning it's going down the tubes, and, and you can just simply convince them to speak truthfully now about themselves and into the world. And you will literally watch their lives go into order. They will get order out of their lives. And their lives will make sense. It might take a year. But they will get there. Now, order and chaos are opposites. 
if you have too much of one, it's going to be a problem. If you have too much of other, it's going to be a problem. Order. If you have too much order, you get bored. You don't grow. If everything's always fixed, and there's just fixed order in your life, and everything's scheduled, and everything's principled, and everything's just order, 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 you get bored, and you won't grow. And so what do you do when your life's got too much order in it? You unconsciously sabotage yourself, and you create chaos. I'll give you an example. If, you're, if your marriage, for those who are married, if your marriage is has um, too much order involved, you will probably, um, I mean, I know my wife will just like inject chaos into my life. If, if things are getting too systematized and too robotic and too, you know, you know, nine to five-ish in our, the style of our marriage. So she will interge- interject chaos into our marriage. And she'll, she'll like drag me kicking and screaming into some kind of growth for us, for the two of us. And I really don't want it. I don't want to open that up. I just want men, ladies, no offense, we don't want any chaos in our home. Okay? No chaos in the home. Because men love their chaos at work. We love the, the, the risk. We'll, we'll inv- right when we should be counting our money, we'll invest it instead. And we're gonna, we like not sleeping at night. We love the excitement. We love professional chaos. Men like professional chaos. And they do it all the time. I mean, even, uh, even David, who, uh, who is our, our host tonight, David Batura, who's hosting us, he didn't have to do this. He just created total chaos. In his own life, think about what, what his, what his, his Thursday night should have looked somewhat like a, his Wednesday night. But instead, he's got to run this, this night, and he just interjected chaos in his life. And where's David? Where is he? He's probably busy handling it. David, where are you? He's there? Oh, he's outside the door? Oh, there he is. David, how are you enjoying the chaos? Louder? I love it. I love it. He's loving it. It's great. And uh, gentlemen, raise your hand. Is every, every time things get too ordered, you, you just throw chaos into things. Go ahead. Th- you throw chaos in there. Yeah. And so what happens is, but we want in our homes, we want there to be, we want our homes to be ordered. And it's not very fair to our wives because we just want, like, we want to come from the chaos into the order of our homes. And we want our wives to maintain that order for us. And we, our, we want our kids to be orderly. But... It doesn't work that way. And you'll notice that the more, if you ever met like crazy teenagers, crazy teenagers from observant homes, so you'll generally find that the more ordered their home is, the more crazy the teenagers are. And, and they're, they're just trying to like wake up their father who doesn't want to be involved in the chaos of, of relationship. Because relationship is often chaos. You can't have too much order in relationship. Putting two human beings together is, is chaotic. Or a whole family of people together. It's chaotic. And sometimes kids have to wake up their, wake up their parents. And it's, uh, and it, it's uh, painful it is, as it is for, for parents to have their order 
mixed up by kids. In the end, the kids are doing their parents a favor. Because parents grow from that, and they, they wake up. And they allow that chaos in. You cannot grow a business without putting a business into some kind of chaos. And you can't grow yourself without having some level of chaos in your life. In the, the possibly seminars, what I do is I take a room full of people who have got, you know, they've got the order of their lives. Now, obviously, if they got to the seminar, they're already saying that I don't like the order of my life. But what is my job? My job is to, is to introduce, like with a ray gun, like, like introduce with a ray gun, chaos into their lives. I have to put chaos in their lives. And so suddenly their lives have gone into a blender. And it gets so intense in there that after a while they don't even know who they are anymore, which is perfect. And then after that's, after all the order that they don't like about their lives is, is blended up, then they can take a nice look at it because now that it's all blended up, I'm kind of looking at it from a distance and saying to myself, you know, that doesn't work. It doesn't work for me, all that chaos. Sorry. The order that I've created. Now, people are very into, um, are very into self-deception. Human beings are always full of self-deception. And that's what holds the order of our lives. So I want you to get this point really clear. How do you have order in your life? Through self-deception. The way you have order in your life is through self-deception. Now you're probably looking at me like, what is the order of my life in self-deception? What do they have to do with each other? And the answer is, that anything that doesn't work in your life, you create a little story around it to explain it, and then that becomes the order. Meaning anything that doesn't work for you, you will just create a story around it that is the order. So one muscle I've been giving a lot of lately, I really like this muscle, but the, my, one of my seminar leaders keeps introducing it without me, so I don't get to say it anymore. So I'm excited to say it tonight. Is that, um, is that when you... When you, um, when you put a rat in a, like a lab rat, when you put a laboratory rat into a, um, like a, uh, you know, into a, uh, a box. They, by the way, you guys all had, I think you had pizza, but they gave me chaunt. So I apologize if I burp once in a while. <laughs> Nothing like a big bullet chaunt before you speak publicly. Uh, After in another five minutes, I'm going to take a little nap. And the, my my greatest moment of giving the wrong thing was I was speaking in the in Borough Park for a Hasidic group called Bubov, and it was the girls' school. So they were all in uniform, and there were about maybe three thousand of them. And so it was like as far as the eye could see, was you know these blue shirted, you know. Girls in a, in a girl, you know, as young girls in all ages, all the way from like little girls all the way to teenagers, thousands of them, and and I'm speaking for like an hour and a half straight, and they Hasidic girls when you speak to them, they don't move, they don't move the whole time, they're just. <laughs> now, if you're speaking to that, after a while, it stops becoming three dimensional. It starts becoming like two-dimensional. 
and and it just no one's moving the whole time. Anyway, but after about an hour, I realized I'm just going on and on. They didn't give me any water to drink, and my throat's getting really dry. So I so I like kind of signal over to the principal, the Minhahelis. You know why they're called Minhahelis? They're from hell. <laughs> so so I so I. Signaled to the Minhael, she was not from hell. Any Minhael is going to let Yom Tov Glazer speak to 3,000 Hasidic girls is not from hell. Okay? So, anyway, so I signaled to her that I need water. She comes back like five minutes later with a fresh bottle of seltzer. Which is when I learned that you, you know, Wrong drink. You know? Now, because I hadn't drunk in an hour, and I'd never been given seltzer public speaking before, so I just took the first glass and pounded it. Second glass, drank a little, put it down. Come back to this microphone, and I don't know what came out of me, but it was just like, it was just like, bah. I mean, the speakers were like, uh, like bursting, and... And you saw, like, 3,000 girls just go, like... <laughs> and I could not help. I just burst out laughing. <laughs> that was one of my great moments in public speaking. The only other moment that I can recall that was one of the great moments was I was speaking in Denver to about 200 people in a shul, and I forgot what I was talking about. And I know cannabis is legal in Colorado, but that wasn't why I forgot what I was talking about. So anyway, I just forgot what I was talking about. And one of the biggest nightmares of a public speaker is what if you forget? Because you see, I don't use notes. I just have the names of his grandparents here. And they uh, keep them right next to me. And in the refuge name of his father, Rafael Ben Frida. I mean, and, uh, and I don't have notes. The biggest fear is that you forget what you're talking about. So I forgot what I was talking about. Now, when you forget what you're talking about in public speaking, the whole, they don't know. So you're sitting there going like. So what happens? The whole room comes to the edge of their chair. They're like, this is going to be really good. <laughs> and you feel it. You feel like this is supposed to be your best line, but you don't even remember the title of the class. So I'm sitting there going, help. Help, help. And this has happened to me like 10 times. And I'm just like, line. And I didn't get a line. And um, But I decided, you know what? This is the one thing I don't like about my job. And I'm just going to get rid of it on the spot. And I decided I would turn to the audience and ask them, please, someone tell me, what, what are we talking about? And so I asked the entire crowd, 200 people there, and what, what is the topic, what is the subject that we're on here? And, and they all looked at me, and nobody knew. <laughs> 200 people. Not one person knew what we were talking about. And that was the last time I was ever afraid of forgetting about what I'm talking about, because no one knows what I'm talking about. So you put a lab rat into a box, and in the box there are four tunnels. Yeah, there's four tunnels. Rabbi, I want you to hear this one, by the way. 
Okay, there are four tunnels coming out the box. And you put inside tunnel number four, you put cheese at the end of a long tunnel number four. So the rat comes into the box, doesn't know what to do with itself, so it goes down tunnel number one. No cheese, comes back, goes into tunnel number two. No cheese, comes back. Tunnel number three, no cheese, comes back. Tunnel number four, bingo, there's the cheese. Now you take the rat out of the box, you put it back in, put the cheese in tunnel number four. Where's the rat going to go right away? Tunnel number four, it goes to number four. And there's the cheese. Take the rat out, put it back in, put the cheese in number four. Where's the rat going to go? Tunnel number four, it goes back to tunnel four. Keep doing that over and over again, it's always going to go to tunnel number four. Now, this time, you take the cheese out of tunnel number four and you put the cheese into tunnel number one. And now you put the rat inside the, the box. Which tunnel is it going to go down? Tunnel number four. That's where the cheese is. It goes down tunnel number four, disappointed. Hangs around a little bit there. Comes out tunnel number three, no cheese. Comes out tunnel number two, no cheese. Tunnel number one, bingo. Gets the cheese. Now, if you put the rat back in the, in the box, what tunnel is he going to go down? Tunnel number one. Doesn't depend. He's going down tunnel number one. That's where they go. He remembers. Because what does it want? Cheese. Wants the cheese. A human being goes into the box. The cheese is in tunnel number four. Goes down tunnel one. No cheese. Tunnel two. No cheese. Tunnel three. No cheese. Number tunnel four. Bingo. There's the cheese. And then you keep it in there, so it just keeps going down tunnel number four, getting the cheese. When you move the cheese to tunnel number one, after enough times in tunnel number four, you move the cheese to tunnel number one, and you put the person back inside the box, guess what tunnel they go to, obviously. Tunnel number four, and it doesn't see cheese there. And you know what it does? It's set, the human being sets up a tent at the end of tunnel number four, and there he tells a story for the next 40 years how there was once cheese <laughs> in tunnel number four. He tells it to his therapist every week. I once saw a picture of child services carrying kids who had been badly burned. You could see on their arms and, and in the foreground you could see the uh, the uh, a parent the the mother who was a single mother who was obviously on drugs who knows what was being put in a police car and the kids were were both had their arms out screaming mama we have as human beings we can't help but make a story around what doesn't work And we consider having a life that doesn't work with that story a life that works. Because as long as you can tell the story around it, meaning as long as you create the reasons around what doesn't work, so then you can just keep going with what doesn't work. And that becomes the order of life. That's what I'm talking about when it comes to order. Now, of course, we're going way deeper than you, you were probably expecting. It's way deeper than I was even expecting. But that is 
how we create orders that we have inside of us, things that does, that just don't work. And that's our order. And the order is because we will deceive ourselves by creating reasons around it that for some, that somehow makes sense of it. And I meet people like this all the time. And you see it in the way they may eat or you see it in their relationships and you see it in various ways. And so the gift I've been given is, and with a lot of chutzpah, is I take I'll take a room full of people and introduce chaos into the very stories that have become the order of their lives. And what that does is it causes it after enough days, because it's got to be day after day after day, can't give a break, because you have to play with the psyche such that the psyche will lose its grip on the story. It just, it's not an interesting story to tell anymore. It, it costs too much to tell that story. Because if you focus on that story enough, it causes the story itself to, to d- break up. It causes that story to, you just can't tell it anymore. It's just the nature of, of the human psychology is that we can't, once we introduce to a story, let me put it like this, let me explain the brain science behind this. So there's a part of your brain that's called the uh, default mode network, the DMN, the default mode network. It's a part of your brain. And the default mode network inside your brain, all it does is just, um, well, does two things. It suppresses your whole brain from networking. It suppresses your whole brain from networking with each other. Why? So that you can take your past, so I'm going to put that back there, you can take your past, remember everything you got to watch out for, in order that you can now navigate into the future vigilantly, so that everything you see, is whatever you see, you can make sure you navigate in such a way that nothing in your future will wind up to be something that might have happened in your past. So an extreme example of that would be like someone with post-traumatic stress disorder is going to just see what they're trying to get away from in front of them everywhere. Like, for example, when I was held up at gunpoint in Los Angeles and, you know, all my stuff was taken and the, the two boys I was trying to convince to go back to yeshiva, all their stuff was taken and... And then they should have just run with the goods because holding people up at gunpoint is like, that's a jail sentence. You know, they should have run with the goods. Except this particular three, these particular three hoodlums were, um, were, um, their, their mode of operation was, was to kill the people they stole from. And so the last 30 days, no one had been alive from every night. No one had been alive. So their next move was to take our lives. And so they put us on the ground, execution style, on our hands and knees, and put the guns to uh, to the back of our heads. Three guys, three guns, and we were three. And and that was it. And I'll tell you, I was humiliated, actually, because here I was, this rabbi, and I didn't say Shema. I didn't say Shema. I knew I was going to die, and I, I just didn't say Shema. And I, I blew it. I... 
It was kind of scary. You know, I didn't remember to say Shema. And uh, I also found out when they say something scared the you-know-what out of you, I, I thought that was just a saying. It's not. Not just a saying. So, and, and, so that was it. And I didn't say Shema. All I was thinking was, you know, because I love Israel so much, I was thinking, like, I can't believe I'm going to die in an alley in Los Angeles. Like, that really bothered me. And the other thing that really bothered me was that I would never see my wife and kids again. And my family, my parents, my siblings. And, and what a shame, you know. What a, sh- what a stupid way to die. And, but it really bothered me that it would be in an alley in L.A. <laughs> there was something about dying in an alley in L.A. that had, like... It was just so random, you know, like, if you're going to die, you know, be in Israel. You know. So, anyway, but just then, in that moment, amazing, like Hashem sent it, a car drives by. <laughs> right there, it was an alley. And like, and there wasn't a lot of room in the alley. I mean, the car drives by, looks, sees what's going on. And these guys were basically busted, and they just ran. The next night, I was at a red light and uh, night, and uh, a car pulled up next to me at the red light. So I just figured, you know, just look both ways and drive through the red light because obviously he's going to kill me. And my wife was like, "It's a red light. What are you doing?" And I'm like, "Oh my gosh! I, I just I was nervous about the car that drove up next to us." My default mode network was so traumatized by what had happened the night before that I was basically projecting, you know, getting shot. In you know, and I'm running red lights. I mean, it's crazy. That's what happens. And so, what scientists have discovered now is that you only actually see about ten percent of what's happening around you. Because most of your brain's not networked. It's busy protecting you so that you can vigilantly navigate life from the order of the past, which may be really dysfunctional kinds of things, but dysfunctional kinds of things with your story and then projecting where you only really see about 10% of things. 90% of what you see is actually your brain creating predictive models of what you see. And they've actually done experiments with this. There's the, the gorilla ping pong experiment. You heard about the gorilla ping pong experiment? I think you can see it on YouTube. Is they, they have people playing ping pong and they bring the, it's, they bring, uh, you know, the people they're using for the research to watch them play ping pong. You have to follow the ball. And what happens is you're watching them and you're following the ball. It's on a screen. And a, go- a giant guy in a gorilla suit, full gorilla suit, comes out and dances around you know, by the ping pong table and then he just leaves. And, and I think it was like seven, I forgot the number, but it was something like seven out of ten people didn't see it. They don't see the giant gorilla come out. And then they tell them, did you see the giant gorilla? And they're like, what giant gorilla? And then they show them the same video again. There's a giant gorilla. But 90% of what 
is we think we see is actually a it's actually your brain using predictive models to navigate. So when you walk into a wedding, for example, you might digitize the whole room just to find someone you know for safety that you shouldn't feel rejection because it is a little, you know, embarrassing and there's some anxiety with walking into a, a wedding. And you're, you're not really there. You're just kind of laser beamed in on making sure that you survive the wedding somehow. And if you don't find anyone you know, there's always alcohol. <laughs> now, I, was, I really had no intention to go this deep tonight. I didn't want, I, that, I don't mind going this deep, but that wasn't my intention. But since we're already here, so then what is the option? And the, the answer is, is to create chaos in our story. Now, a lot of you think, well, you know, I would lose it. You know, like, ah, there's so much of how I'm looking at the world is based on order from my past that I would be, you know, it, it, it would be like destabilizing for me to allow the order, even though it's a lot of that order I don't even want in my life, but to allow chaos into all that order would be pretty scary. And you know, want to know something? I agree. And I don't even think it's that safe. However, in the right circumstances, with the right people, who are holding, it's called holding space. You ever heard the term holding space? With the right people, who've got all the details, meaning all the variables of the room, which includes the lights, includes could someone walk in? All of a sudden the answer is no. No one could walk in. And there's even someone, someone by the door who's one of the people who makes sure no one's coming in. And... And with all the people already knowing each other and sharing a little from themselves, so the point is you get safe with each other and with full guarantees of confidentiality. What happens is, after a while, the set and setting, the mindset and the setting of the situation is such that you can now allow chaos into your life. And take a look at yourself in the mirror. And be able to just l let it all blend or go through the blender. And then once it's all blended together, what you get is something really, really amazing. Because what would happen if you let it all get blended? Who would be there? Who would be there at the end? Who's there? Who is actually there if you let your whole story that you've been so vigilantly navigating for, who is there? Meaning, who are you in the end? And the answer is back to Bereshis. The answer is back to who? Adamarishon. Go back to Adam Arishon, and the answer is, is that you're created B'Tselem Elohim. And the Torah, you know, in Bereshis, it says it four times. Everyone misses it. It says it four times. It says it first in the first Aliyah of Nase Adam, that we're created in the image of the creator of the universe. 
Later in the in Gan Eden, there it is again. Later at the end of Parshas Bereshis, no one even notices this one. The end of Parshas Bereshis goes through the Toldos Adam, you know, all the all the generations, and it just slides it in again. That when it mentions Adam, it says created in God's image. And who can tell me? Is the bonus bonus for you guys? Who can tell me where it shows up again? Yeah, by Noach. Yeah, where? Excellent. It, by Parshas Noach after the flood, when God says you're not allowed to kill people, it's really funny that God says that. You know, after what He just did, it's like thanks for telling us that. You know, <laughs> you just you just that, like the the master of the humanicide. By the way, don't kill people. I'm only I'm allowed to do that. So anyway, but he tells he says don't kill people. Why? It actually gives a why as if, as if not killing people needs a time. You know, it shouldn't need a reason. I mean, that should just be a hoax. But it tells us why. And the answer is, is because you were created in the image of God. Well, what does it mean that you're created in the image of God? What does that mean? So what it means, I mean, I'm not going to go into the whole Kabbalistic thing. Maybe I'll tell you just real quick so you all know from now on. Because anyone here, Raise your hand if you've ever thought about the fact that the Torah says we're created in the image of something that has no image. Has that ever bothered you? <laughs> you ever thought about that? I just wanted to see, because most people don't even think about that. I mean, the Torah tells us we're created in the image of a being that has no image. So the answer is that we're created in the image of the ways that God created the world. Which makes total sense. Because if God creates the world... You know, well, then everything in the world is ultimately made of those ways. You know, if the way I make a car is with metal and plastics and, 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 uh, you know, leather and, and, uh, you know, rubber and stuff, well, the car is made of those ways, isn't it? The car is made of the ways. And so we, the, like, we are the, the, you know, the, the, how do you say the, <laughs> I was going to use Yiddish, the spitz, um, the pinnacle. We, the pinnacle of all creation, are really made of those ways. And just like God creates with Chachma Bin and Das, we have Chachma Bin and Das. And just as God flows creation in the world with Chesed, we have Chesed. And just as God limits that Chesed with the Olamos, we ha- with Gevura, we have Gevura. Anyway, we're made in those ways. But that's not the point I wanted to focus on. That we're created, but Selim and Lakim means, period, that you are awesome. You're, you're amazing. You're awesome. You are the most amazing person ever. Now, all of you are looking at me like, yeah, great. You're, like, you're making me feel worse saying that. But go, let's go back to what we we're talking about. If you blend it up, everything, all the order that you've made, which is, in other words, saying turning dysfunction into an order, just adding reasons and stories about what happened to explain it all, because the cheese is in number, in, you know, cheese was once there in uh, Tunnel 4. If you blend all that up, so then it just kind of becomes goop, and now you take the goop and you pour it into a mold in the shape of truth, truth, spoken truth, 
whether it's internally spoken truth or externally spoken truth, but it becomes, you pour the blender into a mold of truth. What comes out is that, is that you're actually awesome. And it makes all the sense in the world that you're awesome, because like, for example, if I now held, if I lifted up, I have to, now I have to go to grandkids, because I don't have little ones anymore, but if I held up my, my little, I've got this cutest grandkid. I don't know where this kid came from, except I think my daughter. But the, the, um, there's this cutest kid, this kid. I mean, he's just, he's, he belongs on like a Pampers. None of the kids, none of her kids look like this kid. He's just a Pampers, you know, model, you know, which she was, which is kind of interesting. And, uh, not that she actually did it, but she, everyone would look at her and they're like, it's the Pampers baby. So anyway, she's had several kids and now she finally had the Pampers baby. And anyway, but if I held that kid up, Right now, and I held that baby up, you know, just, just by his shoulders, you know, meaning by his, by his chest. And I was showing you all this baby who's now like, you know, I don't know, half a year old. Would you say that baby is amazing? Yeah? Would you say it's amazing? Yes or no? Yes. Say it's amazing. Would you say that baby is, is holy? Would you say the baby's pure? Would you say that baby is, is capable? I mean, not right now, but like, Potentially capable. Would you say that baby is potentially brilliant? Yeah, especially being my grandchild, obviously. <laughs> would you say, would you say that baby is, um, is, uh, beautiful? Yeah, probably would. It's a pampers baby. Um, would you say that baby is, um, is special? Yeah, would you say that baby is lovable? Would you say that baby's worthy? Would you say that baby is, is, um, is awesome? Yeah, you would say all that stuff about the baby. Now, imagine my little guy whose name is Nusen David. So imagine I take that little guy, my grandchild, Nusen David, and now he's three. He's three. Three's pretty little. And I hold up Nusen David. Would you say all those things about Nusen David or you're done? You're out. What do you guys say? In or out? In. Right? And now he's six. Imagine I'm holding you. Now you're six. Yeah. Would you say all that stuff? In or out? In. In. Ten in. Twelve in. Fourteen in. You're still in? You're in. How old are you? Twenty-four. How old are you? What? 18. In or out about being amazing. In or out? In. So at what point, think about it, at what point did you be, at what point did you become all the stuff you say about yourself? At what point? What happened that, that you're suddenly so right about all the limiting things limiting voices inside that have become the order that you inhabit inside yourself, inside your being. What happened? And guess what happened? You want to know what happened? Well, a lot of things happened. (laughs) A bunch of stuff happened. All kinds of stuff happened.
stuff happens. You know, I, I was counseling uh, this week and someone cried to me and told me that, uh, that, uh, that something happened to his kid in a way that the kid should have been protected from. Cried and cried. He'd been through a lot in his life. A lot of things hit, it, hit him. He says, he told me, you know, everything that ever happened to me, you know, I've been through hell. Everything that ever happened to me. I just looked to God and I said, like, I don't understand, but okay, okay. He says, but when that happened to my kid, I was like, Couldn't go on. Couldn't dive. Why him? What did he do? His pain, the pain of my dear friend who sat next to me and cried. I cried with him. The pain is, is that nothing happened to his kid because the beauty that you are, the beauty that you are, the Tselemilokim is untouchable. You're not less awesome because of whatever happened. You're still amazing. Whatever it is you've been through in your life has not touched you. Yes, the human brain may make you get it, start running red lights. Because it plays its tricks on you and the default mode network is going to just coat. I don't want to say candy coat. I wanna, it's a bitter coat, but it will coat. Every, your whole experience of life will get coated by that default mode network. And take away your experience of life so that you just have to vigilantly navigate so that nothing ever harms you again. But you're amazing. The truth, the truth is that you're awesome. That's the truth. And that anything that ever happened to you is not relevant because you're untouchable. Because you were created with Selim Elohim. And you can't hurt that. It's unshakable. You can't break an unbreakable soul. You can never break an unbreakable soul. 
took me many years to discover that. Because I was living in my own order, based on my own story, and woe was I vigilant. For a good seven years as a public speaker, I would have looked at all of you people, and I would have figured out, seriously, I would do this for years, I would figure out every single one of you people, I would dissect you while I was public speaking, and I would try to figure out what would impress you. And now, I mean, there's like a hundred people in here between the men and the women. I would, I would somehow thread the needle to impress every single person in this room so that I would feel safe. I know what I'm talking about. And what, how, how deeply you can wear the order of, of uh, the kind of order that no one should have, but the order that you've created out of, out of your past. I know that. I live that. And it was only at the point where I got called by the, you know, the doctors, the gastroenterologists. It was only when their department called me to schedule the surgery to remove my colon from seven years of teaching and having to just so vigilantly survive each class with everyone thinking I was special. I would literally make sure everyone in the room had that, and it just crushed my body. And you'll notice, maybe some of you are younger, but you'll notice as you grow older that that those that that vigilance attacks it attacks certain parts of the body hopefully only in aches and pains mine were also aches and pains but it got so bad that it was you know i was shriveling up because i couldn't eat but but it it finds the body parts that are a little on the that are a little more vulnerable When I teach in my seminars, just to just to um, show people this, is there anyone crazy enough to come up and be my example? Is anyone hey, you're crazy enough? You're crazy enough. You're crazy enough. So you're crazy enough. <laughs> I didn't take that crazy guy because he's an old friend of mine. Come on, come on. You don't mind? <coughs> Not at all. I just got to give a little hug to Mechi. Oh, I missed so you. Good to see you. Oh. Ah. You know what I just realized? He won't be a good example. <laughs> I'm not surprised. I want to try, though. Just to try, okay? So, <laughs> this is my friend Mechi. You know, when I come to Flatbush, I always think of you. But I figure you must live in, like, Timbuktu by now. I just got back from the Amazon. No way. Yeah. That's amazing. You have to wave back there, the chosid in the back. He just got, say hi. Yeah. You two talk after, okay? So, <laughs> so he's really not going to be the best example because he's just coming back from the jungle. But, um, yeah, so I want you to let go of your arm totally. Close your eyes and breathe and let go of your arm totally. Just let it go, okay? And now I'm going to take the weight of his arm and he's giving it to me. Amazing. He's such a good example coming from there because... 
When you go to the Amazon on one of these journeys into the jungle, the, the, the masters of the jungle are very good at bringing a lot of chaos into your life. And then you just have to face yourself in the jungle. And then you just like, you finally have to surrender and let go of all the stories that you tell. And so, if, I mean, it, it, this is very heavy, by the way. I just did a bunch of push-ups also. So, so it's a little heavy. No, you can give it to me. I got it. But you'll see if I drop it. Yeah, if I let it go, it's going to drop <laughs> like a rock. <laughs> so it's actually good you came up. Because you know what I'm talking about, ordering chaos and introducing chaos into your very life story. Now, I've got a question for you. I want to ask you this, and don't play into it. Don't like be a teacher's pet or anything. I wouldn't dare. You wouldn't dare. <laughs> did you notice that when you dropped the story, not only did you notice that you're able to let go a lot, but did you notice also that you were able to see things literally visually or hear things or maybe even taste things for the first time? All of the above. Let's hear it from my lovely assistant. Okay, and uh, someone else raised their hand over there. Where is that guy? Okay, uh, okay, come on up, come on up. In the blue sweatshirt here. Now, he knows what he's got to do. Let's see if he can do it. <laughs> I hate to do this to people. <laughs> You saw? It stuck. It stuck. It should have fell. It should have fallen. Why is that falling? Well, let's give you a little more time to try it again. Okay? No. I didn't touch it yet. Okay? Now, first of all, head forward, relax. Yeah. <laughs> now, I want you to breathe and let go. You have the lightest arm I've ever felt. <laughs> no, really. No way, no way. Don't push it down, but just give it to me. Give it. No. Now, you notice it's really hard to let it go, right? Yeah. Now, do you need any... Do you, would, you, would you guess... Would you guess that while you had your arm even down, now that you see you're holding it even when it's up, yeah. would you imagine you're using muscles right now, probably? Like you're, you got something engaged? Yeah. Does he need any muscles engaged right now? Told his hand. Zero muscles engaged. And what I discovered years ago was that was that I noticed it in myself because my shoulders used to be up for no reason. And then I had a lot of neck pain because you kind of rob the lower vertebrae of your neck if your shoulders are up. But I couldn't get them down because I was holding. I'm going to try that word holding. holding. Say it. I was uh, holding. It's called holding in, the, in this work. It's called holding. I was holding. Because when the default mode network has your past story always present, vigilantly, kind of 90% just digitizing with predictive models, and only 10% of you is just on task, so you don't like fall down the flight of stairs, so then the rest of your brain loses its network because it doesn't want to get distracted. It wants to be on task. It suppresses the rest of the brain from overstimulating you so that you can stay on task. And what happens is you don't see 
hear or taste or touch or love or see or recognize the beauty of the tree, of the flower, of the of your spouse, of your children, of your mother and father. Everything becomes a predictive model. Your brains literally sprang its its sprang its concepts on everybody. And so everything in your life becomes a navigation. And when everything in your life is a navigation, you have to be holding, even though it doesn't require you to do that. And so in yoga, we, um, you know, we have certain positions in yoga. So, so like when you train someone the first time, you know, they, you have to put them against the wall to do like, for example, to do a tree. You know, a tree is like, it's pretty intense to do a tree. You know, you got to be like, you know, they, they want to be against a wall when they're doing a tree. But what happens when someone does a tree for the first time, and, you know, they're against the, you know, they got something against the wall, maybe their body's against the wall. So what happens is their face is like, you know, something like that. And you know what the yoga teacher says? They say, they, you know, the guy's like, they say, you won't be needing your face for this. <laughs> Let's hear it for my lovely assistant. You won't be needing your face for this. Holding. I do this often in my seminars. When I come in the first day, I have a big thing of, uh, of 12 ounce, um, Poland spring waters. You know, I have a whole, I mean, I have stacks of cases for the men's and women's seminars. And so, so I, what I do is that, you know, everyone's sitting in a big semicircle. It's not a nice thing to do, especially with like Hasidim from like New Square. But what I do is I open up the bag and I just start firing the waters at them with like perfect aim. It's just like, these bottles, they're like, they're coming right to them, but they're like, boom, bam, bang. And then, you know, they're, they're like, they're like ricocheting off the walls. I'm trying not to break windows behind them because they're just kind of hitting the window. And the bottles are just flying everywhere. Last day of the seminar, nobody's holding. And I'm just like, to these guys. I mean, we're talking like Coke bottle glasses. You know, like almost no English. And the guys never left New York. And each guy's just like, Every one of them. Like, not one guy drops a bottle. And believe me, we were not spending the week practicing catching Poland spring water. That was not, that was not what we were doing in there. So you're special beyond belief. You're special beyond belief, but you gotta inherit it. You gotta live it. You gotta, you gotta it's yours for the taking. You gotta, you gotta collect on it. You gotta collect on it. And it is available. It is available. I've been blessed to be one of the people who grant people access to that just from my own story and 
stuff I had to learn. It was all minishamayim. There's a lot of, you know, I also had, uh, I'll be doing a little kumzitz in a while and, and I, I just learned guitar. I learned guitar for all the wrong reasons. I learned guitar so people would like me. But now I can, it, now tell me, when I played guitar before, was it, was I giving a concert or taking a concert? Which one? I was taking. And how much do you receive of a concert when the teachers, when the musicians taking from you? And what do you think most rock concerts are, giving or taking? It's probably taking. That's why they choke on their own vomit at three in the morning. Because there's no one clapping anymore. And now they got to sleep, but they can't. And so they got to take something to sleep. But they had to take something to be up. And up and down don't mix well. Especially over a couple years worth of that. They never, they never lived past 30, 40 years old. You know, I think about those guys. They're wealthy enough to hire people to clap next to their hotel beds. <laughs> I mean, they could just invite people to just keep clapping while they sleep. So God took chaos and spoke order into the world. The fact that God's the one speaking it means it's truthful speech, obviously. And he saw it was good. And he created us, created man, saw it was very good. It's a very strange thing that that's what's so very good about it, and especially when the, you know, you're like, why are we very good? Why is it tomod? And you look in the parish, why is it tomod? Tov is that he created us with the soul, and what's the ma'od? That he gave us the Yetzirah. And so I'm still waiting for the good news. Why is that an answer? What, what, what kind of answer is that? That we're very good because not only are we good because we have this soul that's totally connected to God, but it's very good because we have a dark side inside of us. We have a dark side. Why would that make it very good? And the, you know, the, there's a lot of answers, but one of the answers is, is that is that the whole point of it all was we're the pinnacle of it all, and and that we have to have choice. And we can choose. We got a dark side that will take us down, man. You speak the wrong words. You speak about yourself wrong inside. You or you lie. You cover up for your lies. Your life just, it just goes to hell when you do that. And, and when you speak truthfully, so then your life goes to heaven. What's that? 
That's an excellent question. If anyone else has questions too, please ask your questions. I like that you asked me just like, boom. Didn't even raise your hand. <laughs> I was like, who said that? I am talking to just you. So, so I'll give you my answer, and I think it might work for you as well. If I'm ever saying something not so true, I get a little funny feeling inside my heart. You know what I'm talking about? You ever get a little funny feeling inside your heart when you're talking? That what I'm saying is not really so true. You don't know what I'm talking about? A little funny feeling. Now, of course, you ignore it, and you just say whatever you're going to say, because you were going to say it, and you had some motivation to say it, so you do it. But what if you actually, from now on, whenever you feel that feeling, you take a pause, you take a deep breath, and you say something that is true, instead of what's not true, or just stay, stay quiet, which might be the safer way, considering that you had a motivational lie, so it may be better not to say anything. But... What if every time you had that little feeling inside, meaning, I mean, it seems to be that God gave us this little tiny, it's super quiet, this little tiny feeling you get when you're not saying the truth. And what if you use that as your little alarm system to stop yourself right there? Another way to know if it's true or not is, is, is it built to last? Like, for example, eating unhealthfully is built to last for the human body? Yeah, but it's, uh, but it's, how do you, you ask, how do you know it's true? So I'm, now I'm going a little more in the head, is I ask myself, is this gonna make me, is this built to last, or is this something like, yeah, maybe I could do it today, but if I did it every day, it'd be trouble. Cigarettes. Chocolate. Questions? Anyone got questions? Oh, I want to invite you all. I want to. I want to say. I want to. I want to invite you all to uh, to uh, uh, Muncie. I know it'd be a, quite a quite a hassle if you live here, but I am running a possible seminar in uh, New in New York in uh, Muncie, New York. Uh, there's a men's seminar starting Sunday. It uh, starts at noon, it goes till late at night, and then Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night. And uh, that, that's going on for men. And women is 9.30 to 3.30, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Um, so it's, women are six hours a day by four days. Six by four is 24 hours. And the men is you know, a real long marathon Sunday, and then Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night. And uh, I just want to put it out there that uh, this is your chance. If you'd like to sign up, um, you know, that, that'd be great. And also, anyone who ever wants to be in touch with me, I'll give you my WhatsApp. So if anyone's got a phone out, um, you can pop my WhatsApp in there. Because I, I, I'm not here to be in some ivory tower. I'm here to, like, touch and feel like the, the Jewish people, you know. I want to be part of your lives. I want to be involved, you know. So, so take my WhatsApp, and you can always WhatsApp me. I can send you also uh, the invitation to do it in the sign-up thing. It's my WhatsApp is plus nine seven two five two eight three four 
972-524-4664. Again, that's plus 972-524-4664. Now, you may be wondering why I would, why I would have such a simple code on my iPhone or why I would tell you my number publicly. And, and the reason is this because I learned many, many years ago, many years ago, that, that I want to live in a world of trust because I don't want to have to be vigilant. No, I'm, I'm not crazy. All I gave you was my phone number. <laughs> but I want to live in a world of trust. I noticed that one of the most important things in well-being is being able to trust people. I also noticed that the more you don't trust people, the more likely you'll get ripped off. And then I figured out that the more you trust people, the less likely you'll get ripped off. And so what happened was, I played with this in my days in university in Santa Barbara, is I decided in my first year of university with all my buddies, I decided that I'm just going to trust everybody. I'm not going to hide any of my things, not my wallet, not my wetsuits, not my surfboards, nothing. I'm not hiding anything, and, and I'm still throwing these big open parties, and I'm just not going to hide anything. And at the end of the year, my, my friends said to me, they did a whole cheshbon, and they said, you lost $400 worth of stuff, and thought I was an idiot. And I said to them that that was a savings of $400. And they're like, what do you mean? And I said, well, if, I, if someone asked me at the beginning of the year, would I pay a subscription of $800 to not have to be vigilant over my stuff for a whole year, that I have to pay no attention to that, that I look at every single person who comes into this apartment, every single person at every party we threw, if I looked at them with total trust and I lived not even a second's fear that someone would harm me, Would I pay 800 bucks for that? And the answer is, for sure. And so it was only a loss of 400 bucks. Next year I lost about 300 bucks. Next year I lost about 200 bucks. Next year I lost like 150. Next year, don't ask what I was doing in university for five years, but when you go to a university called UCSB, which stands for You Can Study Buzzed, yeah, you're kind of on the five-year plan. So anyway, but the last, the last, um, the last year, I don't know, I lost maybe 75 bucks worth of stuff. But it was going down each year. And then that was it. Never lost anything again. And I've left stuff in random places. I left this wallet full of cash, credit cards and everything I need. I left in Manhattan this week. Random spot in Manhattan. I don't know how I did it. It's rare for me to do something like that. And uh, it was back in my hands and... About 10 hours later. Would have been even quicker, but I was in the middle of running a seminar in Borough Park. It was, it was right back in my hands. I never thought for a second anyone would touch, touch my stuff. So I learned years ago that trust is, is it's something worth having. And when you trust, people who would harm will just find somebody else. Your stuff develops this like magical barrier around it. And, um, and so that's why I give you my WhatsApp. Because I want to live in that world. I don't want to hold muscles that aren't worth holding. I don't want to use extra energy in this world. I just want to love. And 
make this world a great place for others. Maybe I can share a little bit of beauty that I see in all people that maybe they would feel it as well. And the reason I started my work to begin with was I was tired of being told I'm amazing when I was looking at the most amazing person I've ever seen. Because you're amazing. You're awesome. That's the way God made you. Thank you. Should I take questions? Uh, we, have or, we have time for questions. Guys, we have time for a few questions. So we'll do a few questions, then we're going to go Kumsit style. What do you got? Go, okay, first question. Shh. Anyone who's going, if you're going, go quietly. We're only going to do how many minutes? Question? Five minutes question. Okay, uh, one here, one there. Yeah, go ahead. Yes. What's the definition of chaos and order? Of chaos and order? The definition? Oh. <laughs> um, okay, you got you. You caught me off guard. Do you think it's subjective or objective? <laughs> no, I think it's I think it's objective. So so order. It's such an amazing question. Order is structure, the structure of things, and chaos is the flow of things. Well, I mean, <laughs> I mean, if we were to look microscopically of the environment of your body, like internally, like with a microscope, with a scope, all the way to protons, neutrons, and electrons, we would see total chaos. If you looked at Brooklyn at rush hour. From a satellite, total chaos. Yet there is every man sitting at his table. 45 minutes later, every man sitting at his home, eating dinner with his family. Order of chaos. Total order. So it's like when you look from one angle, it's pandemonium. And But when you look from another angle, it's total order. When I look at this design on this Arnakoidish of this crown... It's total chaos. And then when I back up, it's total order. You get that? It's total order there. So it's in stuff. It's in stuff. And it's in you. You're, 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 you're all that stuff, all your cells and everything. It's total chaos. But here you are alive and healthy and total order. It's the same stuff. So order and chaos is going on at all times. At all times. And police, what do they represent? Order. Criminals represent chaos. And, uh, and uh, safety represents order. Danger represents chaos. It's happening everywhere. When, I, when I'm going down my trails on my mountain bike, you know, I'm going down super steep stuff, sometimes with cliffs on either side of me. So I've got cliffs on either side. I'm coming down this thing. You know, it's like this steep with like terraces coming down. So I've got chaos on either side. I'm micro adjusting my fingers on the brakes. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's really one fingered brakes, you know, really nice double piston brakes. And, and obviously I'm in full body armor and I'm protected for eventualities. And I just ordered a new, uh, you know, full body suit in the, Arriving from Amazon in Muncie. 
too much information. So <laughs> anyway, but I'm micro-adjusting on my way down, which is what? Order. Keep my bike on that trail, order. Keep my bike on the trail's order, chaos around me. And the, the funniest thing about it is I love it because we love it. We just love it. We love the dance. That's dance. Oh, by the way, dancing, chaos order. Chaos. chaos. Unless you're like a same girl, you know, doing your, with like a hundred different girls, you know. <laughs> I don't know what they're thinking in these schools, but, but it's like, we're going to make, we're going to turn dance into order, you know. <laughs> like we're even going to order your dancing. So, so yeah, right. In, uh, educational institutions, order or chaos? Order. The, the students trying to break free? Chaos. So it's like the same place is just filled with order and chaos. Everything is order and chaos. There's nothing you can look at that's not either order or chaos. And they're often together. Okay, later I'll be hitting my guitar strings, which is chaos to my strings. But I'll be pressing the fretboard which is going to limit the the length between the bridge and my fingers, which is order. And that that's also, everything's, there's nothing that's not order and chaos. This is, by the way, what I was planning on teaching. But for some reason I went all deep, maybe it's because I've been running a seminar for a bunch of crying men, you know, <laughs> that just finished like three in the morning last night. So maybe that's why, and I'm going into an, another two this week. You know, so. Okay, um, one more question, then we're done. Um, so the question is, how do you know what you're doing is right? And then he brought up various professions, and how do we know this is right, and how do we know that is right? So um, the answer is that there's something called intuition. That's one answer, is, is that you'd, be in, you'd intuit it. Second answer is that you'll see that you're, you're, you're feeling really good about it. Like, if you're not feeling good about it, you're probably in the wrong place. Another thing is you're getting a lot of good feedback. Feedback's really good. Is if you're getting good feedback, you're probably in the right place. Um, another thing is results. You're getting good results. Like the second someone comes up to me, I get I counsel a lot of people about their professions and stuff. And if they tell me what they're doing is not working, what's my very first thing that I'm gonna say? <laughs> you're not doing the right thing. Because if it ain't working, you're probably not in your zone. You know, I met a guy who failed like this week. I met a guy who failed like five different businesses. Five different businesses, and 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 by the way, he succeeded in all five and was doing well. And then he sabotaged them. He ruined his own businesses. And so I got. By the time I was done with the guy, I realized that this guy was the quintessential best mind I've ever met as a business consultant. And what was his problem? He was doing business. He was in the wrong line of work. He's supposed to be consulting. And, and I've also, my, my mind thinks quick, so I already came up with a whole thing for him. He's, uh, cause he's also a chess master. Like, like the full on chess master. So it's called, che- I already created the whole thing. It's called, and I've also gotten him a few jobs. It's called chess, um, chess consultants, uh, master the game. With a little logo of a chess piece. Um, I just wanna, um, before we get involved in Kumsit style, I wanna thank David Batura, you're, you're amazing. <laughs> 
Delvin and I have been together for a long time. I think I don't remember where we met, but I think you were behind a camera. Were you? Shabbos Kerev Tuni, which is the biggest Shabbaton in the world. You know, it's just this incredible Hasidic Shabbaton. It is my grandchild. It's the only Shabbaton I won't take money for because it was given birth by the Possible Youth Seminar. Um, I gave birth to the Possible Youth Seminar, but the seminar's graduates got together and created the Shabbos Kerev Tuni. And it's now the biggest Shabbaton on earth, which is amazing. It's, it's close to, it's, you know, it's been lately, it's been three times a year, a thousand person each time. I mean, it's, now it's bigger than Project Inspire. And it's just the wildest experience. Hasidim. All couples, no kids. And, uh, I mean, it, there's also room for babies, but, but it's all couples. 400 couples together. And, uh, it's just the most amazing thing. And, and we, we trick them into coming. Why? Because they're all Hungarians, you know, Hasidim, a couple Polishers. And what do we do? We make the fanciest Shabbos there ever was in the world. And you know how Hungarians are with detail, you know. We make it so fancy. You know, it makes the other Shabbatons you've been to look like a cafeteria. It's just unreal what we do. So how do we trick them? We give them the fanciest Shabbos they've ever had in their life. So they get to this fancy Shabbos, and husbands, you know, Hasidic men are full workaholics, so their wives finally pulled them by their earlobe to take them to Shabbos Karaftoni. They sit in the first class, and all of a sudden they start hearing speakers like me. They hear Rabbi Wallerstein, they never even heard of Rabbi Wallerstein, and he's just like, wham! And Rabbi Wallerstein took, for Shevel Shabbatons, he took them for four hours straight, Lael Shabbos, and said the truth. He said the truth. Stuff no one's willing to say. And and uh, I'm talking about relationships and stuff. They're all just like, their ears are on fire. I mean, they're just like, whoa, no one talks like this in, in Williamsburg. And we're now already at, we're at tens of thousands of graduates. And, and it's all ultimately to just get everyone started on the journey of personal transformation. To make a healthy world for ourselves and that the Jewish people, and you, may you all be blessed. May we all be blessed to be well and... Good, only good things from now and the future. Amen. Thank you. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.